Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. And then I kind of came to the conclusion that the best thing that you can do with your life and your time and your brain is to try and become conscious of how you act and how you respond to your natural programming and behavior. And the only tool around to allow that to happen seemed to be meditation. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Balancing Acts. In this conversation, I talk to comedian, writer, director and co-founder of Angel Comedy, Barry Ferns. Perfect. Hi, this is Steve Whiteley, comedian, actor, filmmaker and writer, all round ADHD creative. And welcome to my new podcast, Balancing Acts, where I talk to an array of creatives ranging from comedians, actors, directors, all sorts. And we talk about how they find a sense of balance or not between their creative lives and their everyday lives and how that has an impact on their mental health and beyond. Balancing Acts is made in association with the comedy crowd who support independent comedy creators. They showcase the best new videos on ComedyCrowdTV.com and across media platforms. They support independent comedy creators and showcase the best new videos, including adult animation, sketch shows, web series, viral hits, and lots more. So if you're a creator, then do check them out. Barry is an award-winning stand-up comedian and director. As a writer, Barry has written for BBC channel 4 radio 4 and he's won awards for both his stand-up comedy and directing short films his films have been selected in the likes of the la comedy short film festival rain dance and as a stand-up comedian he's won the malcolm hardy award for comedy as well as the mervyn stutter spirit of the fringe award and he's also been nominated as one of the best mcs in the uk this was a great conversation with barry we covered loads of ground kicking off with the need to eat healthily in order for barry to feel good and uh, and normal and how he also needs some kind of creative outlet every day to make him feel balanced we talk about all of barry's creative projects and the time management involved in in running them and then also spending time running angel comedy which of course he co-founded we discuss his early working relationship with chris head and how he started off doing stand-up comedy but then took a 10-year hiatus to write sketches and uh, scripts with Chris before returning to stand-up comedy. We also discuss this idea of what society deems uh, a creative to be and, and this idea of glorifying the tortured artist. Barry talks about the tension between being creative and being seen to be creative on social media. And so when we were discussing social media and so I was saying, oh, I don't think I'm 
very good at it. He made a really good point. He said, we're not lazy at things we enjoy and are good at, whereas we are lazy at the things we don't enjoy. We also talk about whether the multi-hyphenate approach is best or just to focus at getting better at one thing individually at a time. Barry shares his experiences of attending uh, the LA Short Film Festival and how friends and families crowdfunded to cover his flight and accommodation for him to attend the festival. We discussed the struggle of selling and putting your art out there and the importance of networking. Barry also explains part of the reason he created Angel Comedy was because he felt like people wouldn't want to hire him as a comedian. So he built his own space where he could, you know, do what he likes, basically. Barry also breaks down the experience of attending a Zen Dojo and Vipassana 10-day meditation retreat and then also a two month long meditation retreat in the middle of the jungle in Burma. We talk about his struggles with depression and sort of what strategies he puts in place to try and push past it. Habits and the importance of what he explains are keystone habits. We also talk about psychedelics, the importance of surrendering and loads more. This was a thoroughly interesting conversation. I really enjoyed spending time with Barry and I think you're gonna really enjoy this one. And some of you may have noticed this is a couple weeks since the last release. And that's because uh, after lockdown, I rented a camper van and decided to go surfing. So I went to Cornwall, hit up some surf spots. And yeah, I'm a bit, been a bit lax in terms of uh, releasing latest episodes. So apologies for that. But I'm back, back in the zone. Hopefully we'll have a lot more insightful conversations lined up for you guys. So... Over to Barry. Perfect. A few weeks ago, I was in that period where I was really annoyed with myself. Um, at the moment, I'm I'm all right. I think a lot of it's to do for me. A lot of feeling. There are a few things that need to align for me in terms of when I feel all right. Um, one of them is I need to be exercising and good on my diet. Because if yes. I'm not, that that like I I don't know. I, I can't extricate whether it's to do with like vanity or um, kind of uh, just feeling healthy or just, uh, you know, moving my neurons around in a certain way or my yeah. peptides. But whatever it is, I need that in order to kind of do it and uh, in order to feel kind of level. What does and, a good diet uh, consist of for you? For me, um, just lots of fruit and veg and... Yeah. I, I tend to um, binge on kind of sugary stuff, and that's just okay. the worst thing for me. Yeah, so same. same. Like it, it just, um, you know, it's it's an emotional uh, kind of it's emotional eating, and it's also very much like Homer eats. You know, when he's he goes draws and his eyes go back <laughs> in his head. He yeah, goes, uh, and it, I, I can do that while watching a film for like hours. So it's just not that's not good. <laughs> Yeah, it's just comfort. It's comfort uh, eating, isn't it? Comfort food. I've been doing that a lot more during lockdown. I went through a period where I was doing it like quite a lot. And I was also like polishing back a fair bit of wine as well. Mm. But I'm now, I'm over the other side of that now. And I'm exercising every day. I've, I, to be honest, like I exercise pretty consistently. That's always, that for me is like a, that's a must. If I'm, if I'm not exercising, I just feel foggy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. That makes sense. Um, but, uh, have you got projects on at the moment then? Are you, how yeah. are you, cause like, that's the other thing that I need in order to, I need to have a creative outlet every day that kind of makes me feel balanced and normal. So. Yeah, same. Yeah. I, I, and I need ideally someone else to give me some deadlines is, is good or some, or some kind of deadline that I'm working towards. So 
I do have that with one project and then another, and then there's a few that are just sort of like really down to me. It's sort of like, you know, that early phase development phase where it's sort of me self starting to make it happen. And those sometimes are tricky and challenging. And I know I get caught up as well. And like, I get, I get sort of influenced by other people are like, Oh yeah, you know, I'm not really doing that much at the moment because we're in lockdown. And sometimes I can let that affect me. I, I can sort of use that as an excuse for myself. Yeah, you know, we're in lockdown. It's just like, I, 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 shouldn't, <laughs> I, I shouldn't have to, I shouldn't be working in lockdown. Like, why shouldn't I be? Like, it, yeah, we're, things have slowed down. But in a way, you can flip it on his head and that sort of gives you a valid reason to maybe try and be more productive in a way with less distractions. I'm not saying that that's what I am doing, but there is a case to be said for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that's you beating yourself up. I can hear that, innit? Yeah, hear... that's exactly what it is. Exactly what it's it the, is. The extra thoughts in the way. I Like, um, my therapist says of creativity, and I guess this is the kind of stuff we can talk about, but my therapist says of creativity is that you should, you never should be creative. You should be enjoying your life, and then it comes out of, like enjoying your life so like i i put the cart before the horse so i enjoy my life by being creative but no <laughs> it should be oh you're enjoying it it's like oh you know what i'd really love to do have a pizza you know what i'd really love to do oh i'd love to sit down and write this sitcom or i'd love to write this you know bit of stand-up yeah like, it comes out of an excitement and an engagement with life rather than yeah something. i agree i agree with that i think like the initial ideas always stem from that but then it's the execution of the ideas like once you have the idea that's the fun bit and then it, i'm not saying it's not fun when you're actually like making it but when you're like actually writing it that's where i feel like discipline kicks in and so there needs to be some level of daily yeah. discipline where you're like getting down to it um but it's more fun i don't know about yeah. you but I, it's more fun when you're collaborating i feel with other people than just doing on your own Especially with comedy. Who did you collaborate with? Didn't you used to work with Chris Head? Yeah, I still work with Chris. Yeah. Are you still work with Chris? In still. what capacity? Do you write together or does he just edit? Uh, he edits. Yeah. Okay. He edits. That's good. He's great at that. Do you, like, I, I worked with Chris for about 10 years. We used to were in a did sketch you? act together. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He, he, yeah, he mentioned that he used to work together. Uh, yeah, we worked together between, what, 1998, like early doors, and 2008. So like 10 oh. years of writing stuff for the BBC and we wrote some stuff on E4 and took maybe six, six Edinburgh shows together to uh, sketch shows. Yeah. I, and what that uh, you, you performed in together initially, um, like I, he, uh, we didn't perform in them. We wrote them. I was always a performer. Um, but I was swayed by his kind of reticence to perform. And then we performed in 2001 together. Um, but, and of 2007, but Chris never liked performing. It was never his thing, it was, you know, and um, I think he dallied with it and liked certain parts of it, but it was just, it wasn't, it wasn't his natural kind of um, forte. It's not something that he yeah. enjoyed towards. I think much it's more what happened with narrative and get, get you know, uh, reducing everything down and kind of getting analytical and stuff. Yeah, he's great at that. I think it's such a, um, almost a relief when you can come to that decision or realization that actually this is the thing that I'm best at. Yeah. 
because it's so easy to get pulled in so many different directions, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, especially if you, you know, if you're creative anyway. Yeah, that's you what know. I mean. Yeah. Like, you, you, know, you do lots. Well, you've done lots over the years, haven't you? I do too much, mate. I do too much. Um, like what, I, what, what's, is it? Is running Angel Comedy the, the the main thing that keeps you busy at the moment, or are you just pulled in loads of different directions? No, I mean, I'm kind of I'm constantly creating other stuff. Like, uh, you know, I try and keep away from Angel as much as possible. Do you? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that when I say that, I, I probably average on like an hour and a half every day. Okay. Um, and you know that a lot of that is kind of managing and kind of introducing people and answering, offering an opinion on stuff and yeah. and leading in a kind of rudder kind of way. Okay. But as much as possible, I try and stay out of it because I never wanted to run a comedy club. And it's interesting because, uh, yeah, I, I think I kind of see that it's interesting that what we see as being a creative act in our society and what we don't like setting up a company or a business isn't seen as a creative act. Whereas writing a um, show is seen as a creative act. Yeah. So, and, and it, it, it's interesting what, the um, pathologies of creativity we give ourselves like what you're talking about about should be writing one of the things that is the dark side of that the shadow of that I, have you ever seen the film the hours i don't think i have it, who's in that um it's it's about the life of um virginia wolf oh yeah, okay the lighthouse okay. and it's it's essentially the film is about uh, not just virginia wolf but different generations of women and creative women yeah. Yeah. And, and it's about, the, essentially, it's about the, the idea of the tortured artist and it glorifies the idea of the tortured artist. And I just oh, find that right. pernicious as an idea. It's like I everyone agree. Loves, loves the idea of the tortured artist. They're yeah. just like, oh, he's got to be this, that, and the other. It's got to be that. No, 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 no. If, and if you glorify it, everyone feels like they should be um, traumatized in some yeah. way or they should be, you know, and it's like you don't need that at all, you know. and um, yeah, so all the myths around creativity and what we do and don't see creative as being creative, I find really interesting. It's like, you know, producers aren't often seen as creative, but some of the most creative people that you know are producers, like um, Danny Wallace or Amano um, Nietzsche or, you know... Um, uh, Judd Apatow Victoria. in the US. Yeah, Judd Apatow. You know, there are yeah. loads of creative producers. Kerry, Kerry, McCarthy, in, um, Kerry uh, McCarthy in Radio 4. There are loads of them. Um, but they never get the credit for being creative because they're kind of like in a role that isn't talent. Or yeah. How, you know, we're such a species that is, that is won over by how things appear rather than how things are. It's interesting. Yeah, it's so true. Although I do think like it's, it's shifting slightly in terms of social media has changed the game. So you can have like showrunners who are becoming who are considered talent in their, in their own right. So you hear about like some, some showrunners like Ava DuVorny, um, and you know, she's got, and when she signed her Netflix deal, it was huge news and she's pretty much like a celebrity own right. And then there's like TV people such as, you know, Ben Winston, he's a TV producer who uh, runs the late show, James Corden show. And you know, people like that who have sort of like 500,000 followers on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah. 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 So that's interesting. Like there is a shift, I think, uh, and I don't know if it's because of social media or whether it's sort of like the talent that they're associated with. But 
but I st- yeah, I do agree with like with what you say, sort of like the way our society is set up to idolise the uh, you know front of front of camera type talent, whatever medium that might be. Well, yeah, but it's it also even what you're saying there kind of ties into the fact that those people would be on social media and would be visible. So once the human brain can process a person that it then can kind of put as a uh, front for a, for their creativity and just go, oh yeah, that's that person. You know, that's kind of how we work. Whereas somebody without a social media account that's super creative, like there's, a, there's an argument that Alfred Hitchcock is like revered because he was such a personality as well as a great director. Well, there'll be other directors like Sam Peckinpah, who wasn't a massive personality, but made some of the most amazing films. It just wasn't out there, out front, the big cigar and looking like, you know, with all the over-dramatic kind of um, visibility that certain people have. I mean, you know, it, it makes sense, but it's just, I mean, I don't know how you find with your own career, but the, the um, tension between being creative and then also being seen to be creative. So being on social media, being visible, being seen to be making stuff, because that's kind of half of it as well. Like you've got to be kind of in the right place at the right time sometimes, you know, and to be in people's minds. Do you ever think about that kind of stuff? Well, I think about the social media things a lot. I mean, just to go back to what you said, for me, a prime example of someone who is obviously very successful and uh, well-respected, uh, talent right now who's not on social media is Phoebe Waller-Bridge yeah. and I think so. Donald Glover as well someone who's not on social media mm. and you know that sort of plays into sort of the enigma attached to them yes. and yeah. but they're sort of like the rare few there isn't very many like that I think you know a lot of people now do feel like they have to I think it's like a case of like you, you buy into this idea that you have to be on social media you have to be on it to promote yourself and I think it's just that, but then in terms of like what you do on social media, that's entirely down to you in terms of the way that you approach it, whether you approach it just to promote the projects you're doing on it or to express yourself in a certain way. Like you could probably, I don't, but you can, you could, you could approach it in a really creative way. It just, it just depends. Like Tim Key, for instance, he just posts poems on there on Instagram. All he does is poems. There's no pictures in whatsoever. And it's cool. That's great. So it depends on how you, I don't, I'm not an expert on social media by any stretch of imagination. And I, the thing is, I know that I don't use it right, but I still go, I still carry on doing it the way that I do it. It's just laziness. It's pure laziness. Well, yeah, I, but I, I wonder about laziness as well. You, I would, I'd argue, I, you know, without knowing your process, but I'd argue that you're probably not lazy at the things you enjoy or feel naturally good at. Whereas I think we, we all often feel that we're lazy at things that we're not kind of we don't enjoy like i i I kind of think the people that are the best on the most do the best on twitter and instagram are people that absolutely fucking love it yeah you know like they really do love the format they love the interaction like i look at some people on twitter and they got loads of followers but they're on it every 20 minutes and they're this 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 and like that would be a hell realm for me like like it'd be so distracting i just like i wouldn't be able to think you know, that's, and we all have different brains. We all operate in different ways, you know? So yeah. like, so it's not really lazy. It's almost pragmatic. It's like you kind of saying, you know what? It doesn't work for me. 
But I do think that our profession doesn't allow us to cut off any opportunity. Our profession doesn't allow us to say, you know what, I'm not going to do that. It doesn't work for me. It comes back to what you said about Chris and not, not being an actor or not being a performer. It's just like, isn't it a relief just to go, you know what, no, I've got loads of other avenues. I can do them. But that one, yeah, I'm all right. You know, it's tough to say that. Yeah, I wonder if that just comes like after a certain period of time when you've just explored lots of different avenues and then you come to the realisation, oh, actually, either this is where I'm, I'm gaining most momentum or this is what I am best. I finally realise that this is the thing that I'm best at, so I'm going to like follow that road. But I think it's, it is tricky when you're doing sort of something like comedy or that kind of realm, particularly now where you've got sort of these people who are labelled multi-hyphenates where, you know, like wow what's that word multi-hyphenates oh man when i was i, I was in uh <laughs> i was in a film festival last year in the u.s and they had like these industry that is thoughts. so uh u.s i yeah, was in the yeah but they just come out with terms you're like what uh, yeah but it's like it's apparently that's the thing in the u.s right that they're all it's after like phoebe waller bridge so he, he on this talk this uh, producer, I think a producer, an agent, he said, you know, we're looking for the next, we're looking for the next multi-hyphenate, you know, like Phoebe Waller-Bridge, someone who can act, write, direct, you know, do basically everything. And, I've, and so there are obviously people now that are jumping between all those different things. So that's either inspiring on the one hand, or it can also be quite confusing. <laughs> You're like, yeah. oh, maybe I can do everything. You know, yeah. Well, you uh, can. Yeah, you can. Of course, you can. I mean, it's just. I guess it's that. Like you said, it's, it's the same approach with social media. You've got to work out what works for you. You know, how's your brain work? Some people are better at just writing, and they know that's their thing. Other people need the very. You know, they need that variety. Are you someone yeah. that needs the variety? Me. Yeah. Um. My the way that my brain is created is one where, um. I thrive on movement and interaction. Okay. So with that in mind, I find myself very kind of, I guess it's one of the things that makes me a very good comic and MC is I'm very reactive to what happens in the room. Yeah. I react almost bef before I think. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I've had to learn to trust that intuition. But um, so I've always got like, I always overreach. So I've always got 20 things. Like nobody starts a comedy club. I mean, what a ridiculous notion that is. But the reason I did it, I just thought, oh yeah, there's a pub down there. We should just do that. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. You know, I don't, I, I'm interested in doing a, when, when we did start the Bill Murray on that same month, I was filming a TV pilot for a driving show and having to learn to drive in the space of a month, which is a mental thing to try and do. Um, and so stressful. And I was also writing an Edinburgh show for that year that was kind of quite an emotional show. Like, and that was an intense month, but it's a good example of the way that I kind of operate. I've always got a few things happening at the same time. But yeah, well, you, you, know, you need to, don't you? In a create, when you're in the creative world, you, you know, kind of like going back on what I'm saying, but you do need to have lots of irons in the fire because you don't know which ones are going to really take off. Yeah. Well, as long as there are irons that you want to be, you know, creating, as long as they're, you know, as long as they're swords that you're kind of like melding to use a Game of Thrones thing. But yeah. I mean, you started stand up really young, didn't you? Mm. Yeah, How old were you I, when you started doing your first gigs? I did my first gig when I was, well, um, 
well, technically I did my first gig when I was 16, but I didn't. I did my first pub gig when I was 17. So I did something called the Youth Spectacular in Dorset, which was this thing where, um, and, and it was too a ridiculous amount of people, but it, was, it wasn't really a gig. And then I did a gig in the um, uh, Bricklayer's Arms in Poole, um, sure. run by a guy called um, Eric Shun. That's his name, Eric Shun. I, about, I'm really slow at certain things, but about 10 years later, I realized it was a, it was a pun um erection but no that was slow for me and um a guy called mr jug which was also a pun name but um yeah i'm and i would i must have looked so young and i just had these ridiculous kind of jokes that i'd been thinking i was thinking while i was doing my job at burger king i was just kind of doing all the sweeping up or tossing burgers at the same time as trying to think of jokes and um some of them worked some of them really didn't but some of them worked and i think because i was so young it just kind of took off and then i was in the semi-finals of so think you're funny when i was 18. um but my second well my 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 second pub gig lent led to a free gig uh, led to a paid gig so technically my second gig was a paid gig so it was quite amazing to go like back then just go from and that was in a place called the comedy box which is still around in in bristol and then I did a gig in Midsummer Norton with um, Matt Lucas, in fact, and um, and got to know Matt through that. So, and then, yeah. how long did you gig for? Because you stopped, didn't you? I did stand up. So I did stand up for like two years, and then I um, went to university, um, and then met Chris Head, and I kind of had a year where I was a bit of a breakdown, and then um, just from leaving home, and I come from a weird home environment. Right. And um, and then uh, ended up writing sketch comedy with Chris. I threw everything into that, and then after about ten years, I, <laughs> I went. We stopped writing together. Then I went on a six-month meditation retreat in um, six-month silent meditation retreat in Southeast Asia, nice. and um, I kind of realised, uh, yeah, no, I forgot. I, I, I'm a stand-up. Yeah, oh, that's it. I'm. A, uh, yeah, and so I came back and started stand-up again. So, wow. um, so I've kind of been, you know, I've been writing comedy since, you know, before I left school and performing it, but it's just that it hasn't been consistent in one kind of area. As it, yeah. as it were. And I really took to directing. I still, I, I, like um, when me and Chris were directing actors, it was, we did put on some amazing shows, like phenomenal shows, but we were also working class kids from Bournemouth who didn't really understand that part of the way that you made things work was um being uh, friends with people and being having good networking skills and doing the show and inviting other people around to the shows and yeah. getting to know everyone we just thought we'd turn up at edinburgh get five thousand pounds in debt but at the end of it have a tv come along and make a show with us <laughs> that's how we thought it worked rather than contacting them and telling them about this that and the other year so yeah. we never really had in industry now now as it were yeah i mean it's, i think some people are like naturally that way inclined but for a lot of others i think it's pretty pretty similar isn't it you sort of you, you enter it for it very naively and then over yeah. time you pick up i was like oh maybe we should be doing this or yeah some people are so good at that yeah so good at it like so gen so jealous of people that are, that come out of it fully formed you know yeah yeah that because that's half the battle isn't it 
Yeah, I, I also think that it's something to do with schooling. Like I think one of the, like for example, if you go to Oxford or Cambridge or Eton or certain public schools, what they give you, they don't give you a great education. They give you a sense of confidence exactly that you that. naturally should be, um, a, you know, the, the, the person in the room that everybody's looking to. Yeah. And, and with that sense of confidence and entitlement, everything else falls in place and I, I and yeah you've got to be intelligent but loads of people are intelligent loads of people are creative the thing that sets people apart i think more than anything else is the sense that they're entitled to what comes their way <laughs> and that's a lot of my battle you know yeah you know, it's that it's the self-belief isn't it it's backing yourself yeah uh self-belief is uh, oh, yeah, something i think a lot of creators struggle with i think you you look at like is people like Kanye West and I think it's also also it's different in the US I feel like in terms of the way yeah. that they believe in themselves and the culture in America is very different over here in the UK oh, yeah. you know I can, <laughs> can turn around for instance and go I'm the greatest I'm the greatest ever been like mm. people think you're a knob but, but over yeah. there it's There's, sort of like they, you know, they, they enjoy that. that yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> have you heard theories as to why people say that here like so one of the reasons I've heard is that because the UK is much smaller and we've got much more of a distrust of the class system. So yeah. therefore anyone that gets too big for their boots or too, too high, we want to kind of take pot shots at them because, you know, and, it's, and, it, and you, if you're high status, you have to live next to the person that you're low status, you know, that you're lording it over. So you kind of have to be a little bit more humble. Whereas in the States, it's such a big country and it, and it glories itself on giving it large that everybody's just like, I can be that guy. And the, however poor they are, they're like, yeah, one day I'm going to be Donald Trump and I'm going to be, I think that's traditionally what people say about the difference, but I'm not sure whether that's that true. Or not. Sure. I, 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 I can understand that. I also think it's probably something as basic as the weather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. California, it's like sunny. 365 days a year, you're going to have a bit more of a sunny attitude. Where here it's pissing down with rain and it's pissing down with cynicism. What film festival did you go to? Uh, Palm Springs Short Fest. It was so it was so much fun. It was great. Yeah, I went to the LA Comedy Film Festival in 2012. Oh, was that good? So, yeah, I was just. I mean, it's so much fun because it's like there are loads of other creatives there. Loads of really interesting stuff happened. Like your film, they obviously like. And so they're also really interested in what you do. So, and you've come all the way from the UK, so it makes you even more interested and interested. So it's, oh, it's just, uh, it, was, it was so much fun. I, um, I didn't, I, I got into, I put up, I don't know if you use Without a Box, the thing for putting up, um, applying to film festivals. But I made 12 short comedy films in 20, between 2010 and 2012 and put wow. them out in festivals. And so I was in loads of different festivals, but the LA Comedy Film Festival, I got, I got accepted to it. And I just kind of posted on Facebook on one night, like, oh, I've got accepted to this. I'm never going to be able to go. But, and it was before crowdfunding or anything like that. But I've, but I've never been able to go, but I've been kind of accepted to this. And I go to sleep. I'm in the hostel. I'm playing the frog and bucket in, in Manchester. And I'm in this shitty hostel where I'm asleep at 3 a.m. in the morning and suddenly a load of Manchester United drunk and it's just like oh christ my life's so shit and i like and then i go back on facebook four hours later and i've got a load of friends from different kind of parts of kind of the industry and friends and 
was saying, hey, well, I'll give you 20 pounds to get there. And by like, I didn't even ask for it, but by 12 years, 12, like 12 hours later, I'd got friends saying, listen, we'll pay for your flights and pay so that you can go to the festival in LA. That's and it was amazing. amazing. Oh, it's just stunning because I never asked it, never expected it. It was so humbling. It was oh, like that is a beautiful thing to have that. Yeah, it was it was phenomenal, and so um and yeah, so that's how I ended up going out there. And it's um oh, it's such a trip. It was great. I don't know Palm. I've not been to Palm Springs. What's it like? It was awesome, man. Yeah, it was it was great. It, what was great about it is a lot of these festivals they've got features and shorts. So if you if you have a short film, you're kind of playing second fiddle, obviously, to the features, but. Palm Springs is the biggest short film festival in the US and they really make you feel special. You know, they throw parties every night of the week. There's like industry talks every day. There's buses to pick you up and it was just so good. But more than anything, it was very inspiring. Saw some amazing films and met some brilliant filmmakers. Like we sort of formed a whole posse of like London based filmmakers and actually quite a few who were like comedy filmmakers, which was it was great. I really enjoyed it. It felt like a summer camp for filmmakers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you made ten short films in two years. as a massive output. Did yeah. you make any art any more after that, or do you just think, right, I'm sort of done with short films now? Well, I'd say that a lot of my life, uh, creative life, can be um, <laughs> can be boiled down to the fact that I make things that I think are beautiful and perfect, and then I present them. And then I don't know how to sell them or I'm reticent about selling them. And so like, or kind of putting them out there. And I just, I, I just don't have the skills to be able to do that. And part of that is I don't have the skills of believing in myself. Like, you know, part of the, I, you know, I know I can go on stage and be funny and do what I do, but part of me created a comedy club in order to have a stage to perform on because I felt like there'll be people that aren't, don't want to, you know, don't want to hire me. As a as an as a as an act, so I built my own space where I can do what I like. Whereas part of that is like you know I also wanted a, there to be a space for people that don't get a chance. But another part of it, there was a quote of it that not believing in myself. So I end up kind of like with the short films. I made these twelve short films that I was just delighted with. Just like there was short narrative comedies, there's stuff that I'd written with Chris, and really put the time and the effort and the energy and the money into. It was just you know, and, and they were perfect. I remember I gave one to Alice Lowe, if you know Alice Lowe. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and she loved it, just got back to me and I gave her a copy of it and she, she had so many positive things to say. And it was in the London Comedy Film Festival, um, another one. And, you know, these films had such a character to them. And I just don't really know how to, I didn't really know how to sell them or kind of, get people to watch them or listen to them. Um, and that same thing we were talking about, about giving yourself up to keep putting in submissions, even though be positive, stay positive, despite all, all appearances to the contrary. You've just got to put another treatment in, put another treatment in. Hopefully it gets to, but getting off the ground to just do that hope kind of stuff for applying for stuff is for me way harder than creating and yeah it breaks my heart that the the things that i feel like have value and i and have on authenticity and also a creative kind of heft to them aren't seen by as many people as i'd like but you know it's not a skill that i quite know how to how to leverage 
so I just kind of trying to focus on the creativity and and stay positive and and stay keep going does that make any sense makes complete sense like so is is directing something you still want to do in terms of making short films yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got a couple of short films that I would be putting time into right now. I've got one that's a perfect short film. Like, it literally is perfect. And um, it's all done shot for shot. The script is 90 minutes of perfect. It's 90 seconds of perfection. It's just like it would It would run, I, in my estimation, it would run roughshod through the short film festival kind of season. There are certain, fest- certain films that stand out because they're not only a good idea, but they're funny they're interesting, they're poignant, and they look great. And they're over in kind of like 90 seconds. And they're, you know, when you see like 20 short films together, there's one or two that like that that stand out. You're like, oh, that's, oh, perfect. Oh, well done. You know, it's like one of those ideas. Yeah. But so, yeah, I've got ideas. But one of the reasons I do stand up, you can do it on your own, off your own back. You have an idea, you can do it that night. Um, and with short films, you need to generate so much to engage so many people you've got to get a sound record issue you've got to get actors you've got to get everything else and so it's such a lot more work you know yeah but i'm just as as you were talking i was just thinking in terms of what you're saying about you feeling like you lack let's say a commercial sensibility not a commercial sensibility but in terms of how to get your ideas out there just sounds to me like you just need a producer you just need someone to partner up with who's who's a producer and can handle all that sort of stuff so you you create the work, you make the art, and then you have someone that can help you get it out there. Absolutely. I mean, do you have somebody like that? I, up till now, up till uh, my last short, have always produced everything myself. And yeah. I'm, I, don't, I don't want to do it anymore because, well, it's just, it's too much. It's, it's, it's not feasible. Really- yeah yeah and also i did out of necessity i did out of necessity because i didn't have one i didn't have anybody else to produce it but two i didn't really it didn't really cross my mind to get a producer on board i just thought i'll just do it Um, because i've you know i've i'm able to do that i was lucky for a production company just i said production company, just me but you know due to sort of producing stuff in the past i've always had people that i can call upon whether it be like dops or whatnot so I've ended up just producing myself, but going forward, I'd, I'd rather have a producer on board. I think you know it does it does take take away a lot of the burden. Of yeah, the, I mean, absolutely, inside of things and all the organisational stuff. Absolutely, but I mean, I've always been stumped about who that could be because, like, you know, I've self-produced not out of choice, but out of kind of you know, if I'm going to get something done, then I can either sit around on my hands waiting for somebody to come along. Or I can just make it happen, you know. Like those those short films, for example. I've made them now, and they're good, right. and and they're there. But I wouldn't have made them if I'd waited around for a producer to come along. So that's true. I, yeah, you know. And also, yeah. So I kind of feel like my creativity moves around so much. Like I'm my, the the projects that I get interested in change year on year, decade on decade. Right. Um, yeah. But I kind of feel like. Right now, if I'm passionate about this idea, I've got six months to do it before my mindset changes and I want to do something else. Or, you know, and that's not to say that projects like the Bill Murray come along and it's like, well, this is a long term project and I'll always have a say in it. But in terms of um, keeping engaged with, um, with a project, I kind of try and jump on it straight away and get really drown in it a bit. That's kind of how I work, you know. 
and also I, I find that I can't keep I can't remember everything about a project unless I'm really deep in it like you know like have you ever had a script that you've written and then gone back to it maybe a year a couple of years later and you're like why was I who is that character oh did I write that oh how's yeah, that yeah. like and you're really into it at the time but now your head's not in it it's like oh the time that I was passionate about that character or that perspective has passed and I can't write that script anymore. Perfect. Hello, sorry to interrupt in the middle of this insightful conversation, which I'm enjoying, I'm sure, just as much as you are, but I need to give you guys a little reminder. Uh, if you like this conversation, this episode, if you like balancing acts in general, then please do subscribe to us, rate and review us because it makes the world of difference. And the more reviews we get, the more rates we get, the more people can discover the podcast and we can make it go viral, whatever that means. Okay, back to the chat. I want to just touch upon, you were saying that you went away for six months on a meditation retreat. Mm. Is meditation a big part of your of your life these days? Um, yeah, I well, so... I started meditating when I was 24 by when I went to Ireland. I lived in Ireland for a bit um, in Galway. There was a Zen dojo there. And so I was going on sessions with a Soto Zen monk. Um, and, um, the, you know, there's a community there. And I kind of did a load of research just before that about kind of what you should do with your life. And I didn't feel like social, like... Um, protesting was that good because you took two sides and it didn't often have the result that you wanted it to do. Philosophy seemed a little bit like reading up and philosophy seemed a little bit kind of too much in the head and not practical. And then I kind of came to the conclusion that the best thing that you can do with your life and your time and your brain is to try and become conscious of how you act and how you respond to your natural programming and behavior. And the only tool around to allow that to happen seemed to be meditation that made it clear that your thoughts were just that, your thoughts. They were not real. They were just your conditioned thoughts, past thoughts in the sky. And you should kind of watch your thoughts, but you should choose whether you respond to them rather than whether you should kind of like act on them. And so just it's a way of coming to awareness. So I kind of came to that decision, ended up going to a, um, um, a dojo and, um, and kind of then got into Thich Nhat Hanh, went to Plum Village a couple of times in South France, uh, where Thich Nhat Hanh was teaching. He's a Vietnamese Buddhist monk um, and he's got a, a large monastery there. And then I decided I went on a series of 10-day um, Vipassana meditation retreats that you, where you get as high as a fucking kite meditating, as clear as anything. It's like, it's a phenomenal experience of meditation where like essentially if you think of your brain being like a muddy glass of water because you've got so much input, so much thought, so many things going on, so many stimuli happening and you sit still and don't do anything for like 10 days and you do certain concentration techniques and and then by the end of that 10 days, your your mind is quite clear. You know what you're thinking. You know, and it gets muddied up again. And then I did a few of those 10-day ones and then went off on a series of month-long silent meditation retreats. I went to Thailand, Vietnam, and Burma. And um, I ended up meditating for two months in the middle of a jungle in Burma um, where nobody spoke English. And I'd kind of 
followed i'd heard a tape of somebody that was kind of talking about their meditation um practice and i was like that's a really sounds like a really good place and i kind of figured out whereabouts it was in burma by a couple of things he'd said in the talk and then just turned up there rocked up and they were they were like yeah come on in and then ended up meditating in the middle of the jungle. It's like, it was nuts. It was unlike anything else you've ever seen. It's like, because you get up at, and the, the schedule is bonkers. Because you get up at like, before sunrise at like 3.30 a.m. And then you're meditating until sunset, nine o'clock. You don't eat after midday. You have your first meal on sunrise. And then, yeah, you're just meditating all day in the middle of kind of nowhere. It's, it's, but you get so... Um, clear-headed you know when I was coming out of the med those meditation retreats I'd be very clear-headed in terms of my actions and what I chose to do and oh I want to sit down and write for four hours all right I will set an alarm and I will write for four hours you know and you know I could very I, I had a lot more autonomy emotionally and kind of physically and moment i kind of meditate five to ten minutes a day i keep it more in kind of like in a small part of my life if that makes sense but i don't always do it and i'm not i'm not very um i'm not very good at being i'm good at going away and doing it intensely but i'm not very good at doing it every single day um right. like in the same way that my mind's all over the place it's a bit so um in the same way that i have lots of creative projects it's difficult to stay consistent with anything you know Right. Should you have like, so what would like a typical day for Barry look like? Like, would you get up at a similar time every day or does that vary hey, as there's well? There's no such thing as a typical day. There isn't. <laughs> I'd love it. I'd love it if there was a typical day for Barry. Ah, oh, that'd be great. Like, do you, do you have like any kind of morning routine or anything like that? Like, or do you, does that completely vary day to day? Man, I've got a friend called James who like gets up and he does his 45 minutes of yoga and he does his 15 minutes of meditation and then he does his, his, his exercise and then, you know, and I'm so impressed. Like, it's like, how do you even do it? It's like a superpower. I wake up, I contemplate my own existence for a bit, try to give myself enough kind of uh, like, you know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm kind of exaggerating slightly, but I, I don't have as much routine as I might do. And I think that's part of that is being a comedian and I'm all over the country a lot of the time. So I can be getting to bed at different times, but part of that is also it's to do with my mind. Also, I'm uh, often clinically, I'm not clinically depressed. I, I'm just very depressed. So I don't think I've ever woken up happy to be awake. Like, you know, like I wake up down depressed. So it's always takes me a while to gear up. So, right. You know, you've got to be quite positive-minded to decide that you're going to do something positive, like a bit of yoga or exercise or meditation. You've got to feel like there's hope in the world. <laughs> you know, so, like my, do you know what I mean? Do you do you exercise much? Yeah, I exercise um, as much as I can, like every day. So, do you do like, that later you know, in the day? Yeah, I often exercise like about five or six in the evening. Okay. So just like if I've been working all day, like writing or in front of a, it's a good reset for before the evening. If I'm going out gigging or doing anything yeah. else, you know, I often find if I do exercise first thing in the morning, what that feeling that you described is um, completely eliminated by the replacement of endorphins. Yeah. And that, that always seems to like get, you know, put a spring in my step in the morning. 
well that's it in it like it's like you do something you must have had that experience going to yoga or go to going to the gym after not doing it for a time and then at the end of that session you're like why don't i do this all the time i yeah. feel amazing yeah you know and then you don't do it again for another two months like there's it's you know it's so hard to be kind of a good steward of your own body and life you know it's like it's all to parent yourself well it's such the most difficult thing to do of just like no barry you want to do this you know is uh, that's the that would make you feel better if you get up and you do a bit of exercise yeah my yeah. first response was like fuck you barry no i'm not gonna do that i'm gonna yeah so well it's like one thing that i've talked about i've talked about this in podcasts before but like uh, i specifically noticed it a lot during lockdown like how ingrained our habits are in us, and they're so yeah. difficult to break and also to to create new ones a lot mm. of that is just like discipline isn't it and discipline is hard <laughs> self-discipline <Yeah>. is hard <laughs> have you read any of the books on have you read on the psychology of habit making like no uh, charles um's book or um Who's yeah, the first or, person sorry or thinking fast thinking slow that kind of thing or have you read any of that no i'm thinking fast thinking slow is on my it's on my list um, so you haven't read that book on habit? It's a great book. What's who's it by? Sorry, I can't. I can't pronounce his last name. It's a kind of weird. Uh, it's called The Power of Habit. Um, how do I pronounce his last name? Charles Duhigg. D U H I G G. Right. Okay. It's basically talking about how you know habit creates most of you know most of our life is inertia, and by the word inertia, I mean the forward movement and momentum. Uh, that kind of carries us along rather than because it means both forward and backwards movement um but habit is is ingrained unfortunately we've got neuroplasticity which means that we're we can um change our brain but that takes such a long time creating transformer habits like you know have you heard of the idea of a keystone habit for example it goes into that what's that a keystone habit is something that you do every day that starts you off on the right kind of foot Right, so, yeah, yeah. like, okay. you know, it might be making your bed, it might be doing 10 push-ups, it might be do you, for you doing your exercise. But if you've got that in place, then the rest of the day carries on. And, you know, or eliminating kind of temptation or the idea of, um, like, a lot of the ideas from this book have come into the mainstream. Like, the idea of um, uh, decision fatigue. Have you heard of decision fatigue? Mm, yeah. So, you know, yeah. not giving yourself a load of decisions on a project or a day so that at the end yeah. of the day, you've still got the energy to make those decisions. Well, that's okay. why a lot of the uh, so-called um, Silicon Valley geniuses always wear the same outfit every day because there's one less yeah. to worry about. Precisely. You know, and, and it's kind of, it's part of that kind of genre of science, uh, science writing. But it's a really good book. It's good. It's fascinating. What are, there, are there any sort of um, specific books over the years that have had a, a, a real big impact on you? Um, yeah, I mean, have you ever read um, Prometheus Rising? No. By Robert Anton Wilson or Grace and Grit by Ken Wilber. Um, there's uh, Incognito by uh, David Eagleman. Um, the, uh, the Body Keeps the Score, which is about trauma, is fascinating. Like, um, and for me, that comes from a tra traumatized childhood. The um, the way that trauma affects, biologically affects the brain is so traditionally misunderstood that um, a lot of pathologies or um, 
neuro uh, kind of neurobiological problems get misdiagnosed like the idea of adhd being a problem with kids is just nuts because it's such a broad term adhd means kind of nothing it means everything and nothing maybe you see a kid performing and uh, acting in loads of different ways you say oh they got adhd and all the um uh, medical stuff that you give anyway i won't go into detail about that stuff but the the body keeps the score is a beautiful book on trauma and scientifically like the guy that wrote it Bessel van der Kolk uh, termed the phrase PTSD, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, and has been working in trauma since the 1960s. The way that the um, amygdala and the prefrontal cortex works is that it often hardwires certain traumatic events and kind of like the hardwires the brain after traumatic events. And the only real way to that he's found to um, in in studies has found to uh, improve patient's outcomes is through meditation, yoga, doing things that bring a sense of awareness to human brain is working, is gives the people who have experienced trauma uh, autonomy over their own inbuilt uh, neural reactions to things, or if that makes sense. Interesting. I wonder if um, uh, psychedelics would fall into that category as well, because I'm hearing that there's a lot going on in terms of advancement research and advances to um show and there's and give evidence that in micro in sort of small in cases where they're microdosing under very sort of guided circumstances that it's been shown to help well i know with depression and other sort of uh mental illnesses so i wonder if it would have an effect on trauma i don't know i don't know but maybe in terms of like linking it to the spiritual side of things you know, sometimes a lot of people have their first spiritual experience if they do something like acid or LSD or whatever it is, which then mm. lead them on to something like meditation. So in a way, it's almost like just a gateway. Yeah. There's a, have you tried any of that stuff? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I have. Have you found it? What have you tried? Are you uh, ayahuasca, LSD, mushrooms? No, I haven't done ayahuasca. No, I've done DMT and uh, mushrooms. Yeah. Ayahuasca is something I've been thinking about doing for a while. Just mm. haven't, I haven't sort of. I'm not brave enough at the moment. I, I don't know. I like some of the, just some of the stories. It's Have you intense. done it? Have you done it? I haven't done ayahuasca. I've done, uh, I, I've done bits of everything else. I don't, I don't get super deep into drugs because I don't have the psychology to remain stable that well. But right. um, I have, I have done everything, especially when I was younger. But uh, microdosing is something that I, I've experienced as being very useful at connecting you to kind of yeah it's, it's it feels useful all over but yeah so ayahuasca i don't know there is a terror to it just like it's just so all-encompassing like it's so you're you know you're having to but dmt is like that as well that's like 15 minutes of like being in a world where there's loads of little microorganisms exploring it and kind of like what was your dmt trip like mine was great actually i was uh i just saw like pharaoh gods I saw Hindu and Pharaoh gods and well, I don't think it's a Pharaoh gods or Pharaohs <laughs> and Hindu gods and wow. lots of like multicolors and patterns. And, and, and I had the one thing that this word kept on coming out to was like, like lose control was the main theme that kept, that I basically oh. came out of that as like, Oh, I need to be not be less controlling, but there was something like I need to have a bit, be a little more loose with how controlling I am on myself with my own life think that's what i came away with how what was your trip like 
Well, just about that, there's this great book, if, you, if you've not read it, by Aldous Huxley um, called um, The Perennial Philosophy. And what he does in this is he takes all the texts from all the world's religions and he looks at the similarities between what they say. Yeah. So, and it's amazing because there's so many similarities. But one of the things about losing control, or giving yourself up, is surrender. So one of the one of the things that all the world's religions have in common is different types of prayer. So it, using Christian terminology, like there's a type of prayer that's called petitionary prayer, and it's the kind of lowest form of prayer. It's like, God, can you give me this? I want this. Yeah. But the highest level of prayer, the highest level of kind of existing in the world is meant to be surrender prayer lord let your will be you know in christian terms let things be as they were i surrender to your you know i would like this to happen but i surrender to your better judgment right. and so the idea of giving up control is like um it almost comes through every single religion but also every single kind of um philosophy that you read whether it's a non-religious philosophy ultimately at the end comes to you've just got to give up control because it's an accepting of reality because you have no control. So yeah. if you're going around thinking that you have a load of control, like, great, that's good for you, but you don't. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're kind of wandering around thinking you're like a cat wandering around a house going, yeah, this is, I'm the Lord of the world. It's like, no, there's a whole other world out there, mate. You've got, you know, <laughs> but there's, there's, you, all you can do is give up, but it's so difficult because it's so scary to give up control. It's like, you know, it's the most terrifying thing to accept that, you know, we're going to die one day and that we don't have any real control over what happens to us or whether we get sick or whether other people, it's terrifying. Yeah. And I guess like everyone's got their own interpretation of what letting go would be on, you know, yeah. what, how they would apply that to their own life. Cause like, if you take it from like a work perspective, it could be going back to talking about earlier, an excuse just to be lazy. I'm just going to let go. I'm just going to let, you know, things unfold around some. Oh, sorry about that. That's all right. Yeah, I've been trying to wean myself off Amazon myself. I started shopping first on eBay because a lot of the stuff is available on eBay that's available on Amazon at a similar price. And um, it, it's the closest I can come to allowing my kind of lascivious, if that's the right word, uh, desire for purchasing things. Um, and I don't know, there's something about Amazon at the moment and it's kind of, it's all encompassing tendrils that I'm kind of a little bit more trying to extricate myself from. Do you, uh, do you, do you think much about that stuff? Because it's so hard to kind yeah, of... Yeah, I do. Yeah, because uh, they've destroyed the local high street. Yeah. And, and also there's all the different accusations towards how they treat their their workers but it's bloody convenient yeah <laughs> and, i know, I know. <laughs> and you just get caught in an amazon sort of web of, you know oh uh, that looks interesting maybe i'll get that as well to be honest i'm not a massive consumer usually but during lockdown i have definitely it's definitely increased it's been my one it's been one of my highlights of my day when those guys knock on the door and I get that package. It's, it's like my birthday every day. <laughs> well, you know, like I, I think that we don't realize how, so, how um, marketed to we are by the social media systems around us. So like it's, I do kind of like, you know, I, I heard this about, I, I think I heard it on a, um, Adam Buxton's podcast 
but somebody was talking about how there's an algorithm in Facebook, for example, is an example of the algorithm, that it scans people's Facebook feeds for when a close friend of theirs posts about an achievement they have. Because psychologically, it's been shown that if a friend of ours achieves something, however happy you after them, you feel bad about yourself. And then if you feel bad about yourself and your own achievements, you are most open to purchasing something. So that algorithm oh will then, right? That algorithm will then post an advert for you afterwards over that in, is one of the four things that you have most recently Googled in terms of purchasing kind of thing. It's just like that level of kind of, that it's, is frightening. It's bonkers, isn't it? So, like, no wonder, like, or, you know, like, I've, I find myself so compulsive about buying stuff. It's like there's billions and billions of pounds worth of money going into learning how to sell things to me. Yeah. So, no wonder I'm kind of like out of control with it because I can, you know, I can barely tie my own shoelaces, let, let alone have a present state of mind against kind of corporate, <laughs> corporate marketing. Yeah, that is intense, isn't it? And I mean, there's all sorts going on, isn't there? They listen to us through our phones. If you yeah. have one of the Echoes, you know, the Amazon Echoes, apparently they listen to everything you're saying there. You have to change the setting, apparently, to stop yeah. listening. I went to America to visit Second City after the Bill Murray was, they invited me over. And there was a guy that ran an Airbnb I was staying at that was one of the most bonkers people that I've ever met. It's just so out of control. They had an Amazon Echo and it was before they'd kind of come here and, and it had the speaker. And I just thought, oh, that's brilliant. And then bought it back. He said, oh, you can have this as an apology for how badly everything had gone. And so I, I bought back this Amazon kind of thing. And it was, I collected it to my computer. And then four months later, looked into it. And I saw every single, I could access every single thing that I'd said in that room. Wow. <laughs> that, that it recorded it over the last four months. <laughs> I was just like, ooh. I don't know how I feel about, I mean, I don't want to oh, look at what I was saying on the phone to friends, <laughs> like let alone somebody else. Yeah, we're living in interesting times right now. It's only getting, it's only going to get worse, that side of things. Yeah. You know, it's, it's only going one way, isn't it, with AI. Do you read anything about AI and sort of developments there? Yeah, I'm writing something at the moment with a friend of mine who's um, got a PhD in um, artificial intelligence. Okay. Which I'm not, not kind of going into too much, but um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it really interesting the way that AI is, um, is evolving and how it's not evolving. It's fascinating. Like, so um, what, in what way is it not evolving? Well, it's evolving in terms of machine learning. Like, they're, yeah. they're making very, very um, specific um avenues for which a machine learning can be used but it's not evolving in terms of proper um the way that consciousness exists or the way that the brain exists or right, that yeah. the um or the way that the brain operates which is to do with neuroplasticity and to do with um yeah how how flexible your your learning is and how possible that is it, it's not seeming to go into that general direction which is interesting that they're deciding not to but it's also but frightening it's, isn't um, it because because that feels like it's going then towards the direction of the terminator no feelings yeah. no emotions or then eventually it will turn into the version of the terminator that does start understanding and developing feelings and emotions what am i daddy yeah. what am i daddy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really it's just i mean 
you know, in my head, it was always a sci-fi thing that happened, a pandemic happened. It was like, oh yeah, you know, like Outbreak or watching a film, massive film, huge budget film. It's like, oh yeah, you could kind of get into it because it was so removed from your own sense of reality. But now a pandemic has actually happened. I'm now looking at all my sci-fi books, all the things that they said might happen to humanity and go, oh my God, that could plausibly happen. And one of them is like AI achieving kind of like having some larger effect. It's, uh, well, yeah. it's going that way. Like Elon Musk, who I would probably consider is a genius, is <laughs> so against AI and has been sort of petitioning and campaigning for years to halt or change the direction of, of the development of AI. If, if that dude is, is worried about AI, then I think, you know, <laughs> we should all be. Yeah. Well, you know, I think if there's anything that the pandemic has shown us, is that we should all be a little bit more cautious and worried about things that we're told we should be cautious and worried about. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, you know, maybe, maybe they have a point because they've been saying, oh, one of the biggest threats is, say, like a flu-like, you know, we all knew that. We all knew that the Spanish flu was a massive thing and that if something like that came along, it could really transform. And still we're unprepared. Like, it happened in January and still our government was like, it didn't even close down. Yeah, herd immunity or something like that didn't even pay attention like no. you know but like global warming that's a thing that we're not paying attention to ai is a thing we're not paying attention to it is super worrying and it turns out like oh fuck nobody's got more of a clue than i do oh bollocks and i haven't got a clue at all you know it's uh, it's it's worrying that nobody else knows we're all blagging our way through life essentially yeah you know it's just it go back to what we said right at the beginning of the conversation it's all about perception really you know you know, yeah. in terms of like on social media, oh, he looks busy. He must be doing well. He lo looks like he knows what he's talking about. So I'm going to believe what he says or <laughs> just yeah. buy into that perception. Well, that's because we're all apes, aren't we? Like, um, you know, we, we, we all know internally, you know, there's a, I don't know if it's the phrase is a, is to do with the distortion in the way that our brains perceive the world is that we're highly aware of our own inadequacies and not very aware of other people's inadequacies because yeah. we can't internalize them. So whenever we see somebody being confident, we automatically endow them with the idea that they know what's going on. Whereas we would never, unless we were absolutely um, kind of deluded, like anyone that's got a sense of themselves wouldn't presume they know what's going on. Have you heard of the um, Cruder-Dunning formula? Yes, but remind so, me what it is. The crude learning formula is one that is made up with uh, two social psych psychologists from uh, MIT, yeah. I don't know, 20 years ago. But it was, uh, they did a study, to, a large study, and it's, so it's, it's been proven, is that those people that think they are good at something lack the qualities they need to be good at that thing. And those people that do not think they're good at something have the qualities they need to be good at that thing. So in layman's terms, it's essentially, if you think you're not very good at something, you double check, you triple check, you do all the research to ensure that you're on the right track. So that you're actually very diligent and those are the qualities you need to be good at something. You know, it's like to be a good stand-up, often the best stand-ups aren't the people that are most naturally funny. They're the people that work hardest, sit down, make sure they're at the desk, presume they're not going to be funny, put all the work in, record all the gigs, listen to them afterwards, do all the work because they're presuming they're working under the operating procedure that they're not as good as they, uh, as they could be. 
But those people <laughs> that think they're good at something do none of that work. They just walk <laughs> in and go, they walk in and go, yeah, I know this. I know it. Like Donald Trump is the exact, you know, Boris Johnson yeah. are both yeah. perfect confidence over kind of any, you know, well, these so-called experts can say whatever they like, but I know better, you know, like there's that real sense of kind of like, um, uh, bluster over any kind of kind of work. So yeah, there's this, it's a really interesting kind of bias in the human brain where we just, we, as we attribute other people's confidence as actually having some basis in fact, whereas most of the time confidence has no basis in fact. All it has is basis in delusion. Like, if you see somebody confident, you should essentially just go, well, that person's deluded. <laughs> if you think about, like, uh, CEOs, yeah, uh, there's been studies to show that uh, a large percentage of CEOs are sociopaths uh, yeah. in, you know, the corporate world. But I would imagine that a lot of those CEOs would have a, um, in terms of their strengths, one of the things they would have in their sort of ammunition is that they can read people's weaknesses. So Steve Whiteley, who sort of feels unconfident and sort of yeah. looking at someone else who's got that confidence, I as a CEO will be able to see right through his flaws and weaknesses and use them to my advantage. And uh, <laughs> it's that sociopathic element thing that people like that, I'm not saying that all people who think like that are sociopaths, but they're able to use people's flaws and insecurities and vulnerabilities to their advantage to, to get what they want. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd agree with that, but I'd put it in slightly different terms in that I'd say that I think most people can see other people's weaknesses, but, but if you're healthy, you don't want to use somebody's weakness in order yes. to give yourself an advantage. Yes. If you're healthy, you want to see somebody's weakness and kind of like, you know, sidestep it and be kind of considerate around it and kind of, you know, not offend them and be quite nice. But sociopaths are like, haha. I can gotcha. I can uh, use this to my advantage. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, and it's gotcha precisely. And so like sociopaths are people that just, you know, their own, uh, I, I think this would be right, is that they are way more important than the other people around them. And everybody else should listen to them, you know. So, you know, so they almost rationalize acting like that because it's for the wider good you know, in a kind of Hitler type way of like, well, I'm only doing this for everyone else. And, you know, because society hasn't been working. Yeah. You know? You'll see. It's for your own good. Yeah, precisely. It's for your own good <laughs> as they're anesthetizing you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we've covered lots of different grounds. Um, yeah. <laughs> we've covered a lot of ground. It's been really great. I wanted to ask you a question I ask all the, the guests who come on uh, the podcast, what the idea of uh, balance means to you or not. Um, I, I guess balance to me is being aware enough of my biases and um, my biases and my um, reflex actions to be able to not um, react to them, but to respond. It's having a bit of inner kind of um, stillness to be able to choose how I act. 
And sometimes that kind of balance comes from being in flow. Sometimes that balance comes from being in the right place at the right time. Sometimes that balance comes from having exercised or done some meditation or something like that, or count done in psychotherapy, or it can come through medication and, you know, be on SSRIs, but finding some way to not, just reflex respond to life because i kind of feel like all my problems but also all of humanity's problems come from a uh, an imbalance in how they see the world or how they kind of respond to the world you've got to make such an effort to kind of be aware of your own stories <laughs> beware of the stories you tell yourself yeah. beware of the stories that you kind of construct and you know some some of those stories might be that right-wing people are bad or left-wing people are emotion over emotional idiots or you know all of or that black people are this or white people are like this or men are like this or women like this you've got to be so aware of those stories mm. because you know it's like nobody gets a monopoly on the truth it's so hard so like finding a balance means kind of finding a bit of space within my own kind of flawed perception that's a great answer yeah, that's like, a great answer hard. All right, man. Thanks so much. No, thanks. Thanks for having me, man. It's been really nice to chat. Perfect. There we have it. Barry Ferns via Zoom. And I wonder if um, if I'm going to go back to the original format of, you know, actually talking and meeting with guests face to face because it's just so convenient, isn't it, for people just to chat over Zoom. And I think it's been okay in terms of you know, still managing to have a in-depth conversation and there being hopefully some kind of connection there that you would maybe think would be missing but by not being face-to-face. But I think we've all become so used to chatting on Zoom now that, you know, it's almost like IRL, isn't it? So who knows? We shall see. But it is a great thing to have this piece of technology here for now. So we can keep in touch with people and uh, do lovely things such as speak to people and record podcasts. So as I said, I've been AWOL a little bit because I went to Cornwall, I went surfing and I hired a camper van. It was my first camper van in experience and I enjoyed it. I did very much enjoy it when we stayed in, uh, we stayed in this uh, eco-friendly campsite in Port Town on the west coast of uh, Cornwall. But the weather was shit. It was overcast, and it, I think it makes all the difference if you're going to go campervanning. Uh, I don't, I don't seem to be able to pronounce the word campervanning. I give you campervanning. Yeah. Anyway, I, I don't, uh, I don't recommend it if the weather is not great. But then on the final day, we drove over to Fistral, which is a bit, you know, it's quite, quite a mainstream beach, mate. Quite mainstream, not yummy, not niche. I like, I like my niche. I like my niche surfing beaches, you know. Yeah, you know I mean, away from the crowds, all that sort of thing. And it was actually really nice because then the sun came out and managed to get some surfing, got some food. It was fantastic. It was just so nice to be out of London because I've been in London for the full duration of the lockdown period. And it was great to get out into the sea, splash around and catch some waves, dude. Totally gnarly. Totally gnarly. And uh, yeah, if, if you watched from afar and you saw a man wobbling around uh trying his best to look cool but failing miserably then that was me so yeah thank you very much for listening as always if you like this episode please do rate and review 
the podcast, that would be much appreciated. And if you haven't subscribed yet, then why not? Give it a go. What's the worst that's going to happen? It's going to clog up your, your data. Big deal. It's worth it, right? Okay, guys. Until next time, have a good one. Balancing Acts is made in association with the comedy crowd who support independent comedy creators. They showcase the best new videos on ComedyCrowdTV.com and across media platforms. They support independent comedy creators and showcase the best new videos, including adult animation, sketch shows, web series, viral hits, and lots more. So if you're a creator, then do check them out. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.